you're an arts community if the people who are living here with talent and are artists can afford to make a living and have places to perform, show their work. You know, that's an arts community. That's New York. That's Chicago. That's San Francisco. It's LA. It needs to be St. Petersburg, and that's kind of what we're trying to do. Well, hello, and welcome to AI Arts In, the podcast sponsored by Creative Pinellas. I'm Barbara St. Clair, your host, and today I'm with Paul Wilborn, who is a multi-talented, multi-faceted, I, I want to say renaissance, renaissance person, who currently runs the Palladium Theater in St. Pete, but has had many, many, many roles in your life, including writer, arts administrator, uh, performer, music man. Uh, in case one of them falls through, you always need a few, three or four others just in case to keep you going. I, I hear that. Um, I want to start with you as a writer because you uh, you were a war correspondent. I did a little bit at all. over I, About 25 years in the newspaper business, starting at the Tampa Tribune, the St. Pete Times. I was their state correspondent and covered the Gulf War, covered parachuted into riots and murders and horrible things and Never was an arts writer, actually. Loved the arts, did it on the side, but I just loved... I was the weekend takeout guy who wrote the big story from, you know, the AIDS march in San Francisco to whatever. But it was you know, always something interesting and crazy and fun. And there was a lot of money in those days in journalism, and they would fly you anywhere you wanted to go. So I sort of have a picture of you, you know, dropping into a battle zone, you know, in a flak jacket and all of that, and yet... My most recent image of you is sitting in front of a piano, your fingers <laughs> tickling those ivory keys, singing and... I do remind people that my war correspondent time was spent sleeping at the Intercontinental Hotel in Riyadh. So it's not quite as dangerous and crazy as it seemed. I wasn't intense, but I did cover the war. And, uh, so, no, and I never got shot at. So that was, you know, don't want to take it too far, but yes, I was there. But yeah, all my life I've played the piano. Uh, my brother was a Broadway performer, and my mom made sure we had lessons, and we sang a lot as a family. So m the arts and music were sort of around our house growing up. So I've been playing the piano since I was seven years old. So here, here is a seven-year-old playing the piano, arts and music. And, and putting out the local newspaper for my block. Okay. We put a block, you know, the Temple Terrace Times, for our, for, for, it covered about two blocks. So, yeah. so early in your life, then, yeah. you did self-identify as a writer. And how did you come to pursue the journalism career? Really, I wrote, a, it's funny, I looked back on it, I wrote a short story, because uh, I was reading a lot of detective stories, because they were a little racy when I was in junior high school. And uh, and I wrote a detective story for an English class, my, back then, eighth grade was... And in ninth grade, I suddenly showed up and they had assigned me to the newspaper. And I think it must have been because they liked, they thought I could write. And so I worked for the junior high paper. Then by my junior year, I was editor of the high school paper, which usually you're not editor until you're a senior. And then went to USF and within a week, I turned in a spec story and I was hired at the Oracle. And they actually paid you like $4 an hour, which had, back in those days was like real money. Uh, better than you worked at, you know, McDonald's or restauranting. So I worked on newspapers all through college, and that was it. Just opened up and seemed easy, and and uh, I was much better writer, still am, than a piano player. But I love doing the piano stuff. Okay, so you at some point went out to Los Angeles and worked as a writer. Yeah, I uh, the 
Times started, uh, uh, then the St. Petersburg Times, really made a move into Tampa in the late 80s, early 90s. They hired my friend Howard Troxler in, from the Tribune, and then they hired me. I was the second guy they went after to sort of say, we're taking Tampa. And so I worked for them till 98, 99, and won a fellowship to the University of Michigan, and kind of said, all right, what do I do now? And ended up living in Berlin for a year and writing a screenplay project based on one of my stories. And that got optioned by some folks in LA. And they said, you can come live in our big house. So I moved to LA and lived in their big house and had my midlife crisis out of town, which I recommend to everyone. There are very few witnesses and, you know, people think he was off doing great things. And I was just sort of figuring out what the next phase was. What happened to the screenplay? It's got caught up in a lawsuit. It never got made. I'm actually back looking at it going, you know, maybe I could write this as a book. Uh, you know, when I went to these producers' house, and these guys were semi-legitimate producers, you know, they had funding and they were doing projects, but there were hundreds of abandoned screenplays just lining their walls. And I'm thinking that's every producer in LA. And I've kind of came to the conclusion that this was not the right business for me. Uh, that Screenwriting was a, at best a crapshoot and the dice were loaded not in your favor. And I should have maybe shown if I wanted to do that when I was 20 years old. And I was not 20 at that point. But then the the big hand of Tampa came and, and drew did. you back. How did that happen? It did. I met my wife out there. We were not married at that point, but I met her and, and was said, this is it. This is great. All is great. And she was trying to move out of L.A. She'd been an actor there for 14 years and really was wanting to move back to New Orleans. And, uh, and I, so I said, well, let's look around. We looked in New Orleans. And then my friend uh, Pam Iorio got elected mayor of Tampa. I hadn't supported her. I hadn't sent her a dime. I hadn't even talked to her. But after she got elected, I thought, what a great person. You know, I could work in her administration. My mom was still here. My family was still here. And I wrote to her and she offered me a job. But she said, I don't want you to be my media guy. I want you to be my arts guy. And that was sort of a reflection. I had done a lot of art stuff, uh, sort of pro bono, outside of my job. Uh, Ybor City in the 80s was a real arts mecca. No one else was there except artists. And uh, I was a deep part of that scene, and we created happenings, and we created giant arts parties, and we created a thing called Guavoin, which was a real arts, uh, it was a fundraiser for a theater company. It grew into a thing that sort of, we got it, we eclipsed us and became an annual event drawing 100,000 people. Uh, but I, all those things, and I booked bands and was playing in bands, and so all that stuff was just sort of, I thought it was a glorified hobby. You know, but but I knew everybody in the arts scene. I was on the board of the Straz, which was then the Tampa Bay Performing Arts Center. And so I just, it was a scene I really knew, but had never worked in in terms of professionally. So she thought I knew a lot of people and worked out well. And I moved back here in 2003 and did that job for four years. So what kind of transition? So back in the 80s, mm -hmm. creating Guava, Ween, and, and how did that evolve? Really, you know, and we look back at it, and one of the things we laugh about was that we absolutely never sought a government grant. We never asked permission. We never got a permit. We were just a bunch of crazy young people trying to make things happen. And Ebor was empty, and they had these beautiful old clubs, and so... All you had to do was talk to the people. I think our rent was $400, and our goal wasn't to make a lot of money. It was to have 
incredibly crazy things happen. And so when you, that's your goal, it's pretty easy. What we were surprised at was we would create these environments and they would be themes and we would have mock coronations and all sorts of things. And thousands of people turned out and paid money. You know, we, we, our biggest problem was how do we handle the crowds? And I think one year we went to, there was an umpire school in St. Petersburg and we hired all these young umpires hoping they could direct the crowd. They were horrible. But that was the kind of mindset we had. You know, instead of hiring a real cop or someone who might actually be able to do something, let's hire a bunch of young umpires in training. It was a disaster. Were they wearing the, the black yeah, and white well, they, shirts? They and... wore the whole umpire outfit except for the cushion, you know, on their chest. And uh, it was fun. It was fun. And it all turned out, you know, no one died. We we made enough money to take ourselves out to dinner afterwards at some fancy restaurant because we were all too poor to go go there. Otherwise, I think we went to Burns and, you know, ordered wine. But so it was just a real feeling of, gosh, we can do anything in this place. And it's a really wonderful historic place. My great-grandparents had been Italian immigrants, so I was really drawn to Ybor. And there were a lot of great artists there. Some mediocre artists there, too, but just a lot of folks trying to make something interesting happen. It was a real scene. I'm actually writing a short story project right now set in the 80s in Ybor City uh, to go with a bunch of pictures that my friend David Audette has. I think it's fun. The stories are kind of fictional, but the backdrop is the real backdrop, and there'll be some real characters in the backdrop, but I can manipulate the fictional ones to do anything I want them to do. Anything in particular? Well, um, the one story I'm finishing up right now, there was a wonderful little character named... General Avinel, I want to say his name is. I've changed his name to General something else. But he was a old con man who owned the biggest, most beautiful building called El Pasaje in Ybor City and lived in this giant building all by himself and sold life extension stuff. And he had made a living selling phony government uh, proclamations and things from South America. He'd just been a complete con man. Uh, but he was a wonderful con man and a real character. And one of my characters who lives in the apartment my old girlfriend lived in, but it's not my old girlfriend, befriends him and mysteries happen. And, you know, so that's just one story where these young artists are there and there's still a lot of crazy Ybor City characters left over. Well, I moved to this area about 18 years ago and Ybor still had that kind of magical, you know, I remember mm-hmm. reading The Ghosts of Ebor, and there was still some... There was Three Birds Bookstore and a lot of kind of cool things. It hadn't quite... It, unfortunately, it kind of became a lowest common denominator bar district as opposed to a really interesting uh, cultural district. And I think the city misread what Ebor City was. And it's still struggling to get back to that, I think. So um, I, I'm sort of torn between going two different ways right now in this moment with my question, because some of the energy that you were describing about Ebor in the 80s feels like maybe the energy of St. Pete right now. I've actually thought about that a lot and talked about it with some folks. I feel like I'm lucky enough to have lived in two places where a really wonderful scene is unfolding, and I'm lucky enough to be part of it. And, uh, you know, I'm older, I've got a real job uh, in the arts now, but uh, it's a perfect time to be in St. Pete, and it has some of that same energy. It's a little more organized, a little more uh, people are getting permits, they are (laughs) seeking grants, they are doing a lot of the more normal stuff, but there's also just a flood of really talented people here, and in many ways uh, more talented than some of the folks that I saw in Ybor back in the 80s. There's some real serious 
artists and writers and performers who've chosen this place. And it's a great time to be here, I think. So is St. Pete at risk of becoming the Ebor of Pinellas County, or, or I, does it have a different trajectory? I think it does. It's bigger, which is nice. Uh, I have, whenever I get a chance to talk to the mayor or a city council person, one of the things I always say is too many bars and too much, you know, young people roaming the streets will drive away your scene. And I'm not saying young people in a pejorative way, but the idea of just being a bar destination that it drives away the folks you want and it drives away the uh, the character of a place, I think. So I think so far St. Peter's walked that line. I think it's going to continue to walk that line. Uh, the biggest problem I see in St. Pete is, uh, you know, the increase of rents that are driving a lot of creative businesses. But that's always happened. And they've kind of moved to new places and create new things. I love the 600 block, but I see some of the old players that were there for a few years doing really interesting things, having to move farther out somewhere to make it happen. But we're big enough, we're diverse enough that even if one or couple of blocks around Janus Live becomes sort of the party district, you've got a lot of other districts to carry on. And you've got real substantial museums and arts organizations and great leadership right now. I just love the people who are running the organizations. We're all sort of in a rising tide kind of mode. So it's a good time to be here. Yeah, so there, what, what I hear you saying is, is there's some structural things dug into St. Pete, like the museums and uh, the, the Morian Art Center, the, the new um, Raymond James Museum, the Chihuly Museum of Fine Arts that kind of serve as anchors. They will, all things being equal and, you know, keeping our fingers crossed, of course, they will keep the city oh, centered yeah. and balanced. Yeah. American stage, the Palladium, there's just a lot of, of things that are here for the long term, I think. And, uh, and it also got more territory. Ybor City was, you know, a few streets. And these giant old buildings that tended to lend themselves to big bars. I mean, and I think there was a, just a, a vision that was not the right vision, ultimately. But I think St. Pete's big enough and diverse enough, and it's at a point where it's going to be hard to really screw it up too badly, I think. I think it's going to be a good ride for a while. So you mentioned the Palladium. I did. Let's talk about the Palladium. Tell me the story of the Palladium and your involvement in it. It's a really wonderful story, and my involvement is late in that story, and I give credit to uh, a lot of folks. What happened, and it's an interesting thing, is, and I was part of this group in Tampa when we were saying, gosh, we need a performing arts center. You need this mecca, big cultural box of culture. And we ended up, over the years, building Ruth Eckert Hall, the Tampa Bay Performing Arts Center, now the Stras, the Mahaffey got redone into a beautiful uh, center, and they're all really nice places, which very few people who actually do the arts in a community can afford to perform. It's not their fault, it's just the nature of what these big performing arts centers are. They're designed for big road shows, they're designed for big name concerts, they're union shops for a good reason, and they have high overhead, uh, and so in the 90s, after all of these things were in place, some folks like Bill Huff and Gus Stavros and uh, Mary Wyatt Allen and some other real good philanthropists in St. Pete looked around and said, nobody in St. Pete can afford to perform there. If you're a dance company or you're an aspiring troupe or a young musicians, you can't afford to perform. At so it's places. not that you can't afford the ticket. It's no, no, that no. you can't, you can't afford the rent. And in, in the 
Tampa Performing Arts Center, uh, Tampa Players actually almost went out of business when they went in there after it opened and said, we're going to do a big run of something popular. And they sold plenty of tickets. It's just the cost in, of doing it is very high. And there's a lot of added on costs that are just the way it is in that industry. So they thought we need a theater, a performing arts facility that's affordable for the arts community. And it was a great vision. They looked around at a bunch of, they were looking at old churches in particular, and someone told them about the Christian Science Church at uh, 3rd and 5th uh, up from the Vinoy, and they hadn't been in. And it was still occupied by the Christian Science Church, beautiful building built in the 20s, and there were only about 100 members left. And they had theater seats. It was not pews, it was actual theater seats. Wow. So, to long story short, they bought it, uh, renovated it, uh, you know, raising money and digging into their own pockets, and uh, and in 1998 it opened, and, and really did for those years what it was hoping to do. It just They just couldn't figure out quite how to make it go. It struggled, it lost money, uh, as many arts places do early on. And he went through a few directors. And in 2007, the board made a deal with St. Pete College to take it over with the idea that they would raise an endowment so the college wouldn't be on the hook for all the operating. And uh, the college would get this great facility, land, and downtown, beautiful thing, if they agreed to operate it in perpetuity. And it was a really a visionary deal. And through state matching grants and fundraising, we ended up with $6 million in endowed funds. Wow. And I have a, currently have a $5 million endowment. One of those endowments was really more of a construction thing, and we spent that money. But we've the $5 million endowment is still helping me bounce my budget every year. And the college struggled for a couple of years. They hired me that year, 2007, and uh, it took a while to sort of turn the ship and get it where it is, but we've we've raised our our budget from around five hundred thousand to a million five and that's just pure operating. I don't pay rent, I don't pay electric you know, a lot things that would be a normal budget. So we're really about a two point five million dollar operation and we're in the black. And it's going well. That's and pretty we're cool. Doing the mission, uh, you know, and having a lot of fun. So um, the mission, what kind of performances are going on at the Palladium? It's really a wonderful mix, and it depends also on the time of year. But we have stayed with that local uh, aspect. My nutcracker is the Academy of Ballet Arts in St. Petersburg. You know, the Clara is always going to be a girl who lives here. Uh, we have the Tampa Bay Symphony four times a year. We have the Barbershop Quartet Group. In May, we're filled with... You know, every little girl in tutus and their mom and the recitals from all the dance academies. And in between, I have the best local jazz, blues, and other artists that we adopt and put in our nightclub and pay real money. And for a lot of folks like that, they're, we're the first place they've played where they're a real hard ticket, not a cover charge. The mix is really pretty wonderful. And we have... Uh, Ruth Eckerd and Mahaffey using us as a venue, so we get a lot of bigger name shows that come in to sort of draw more folks, and it's really hit critical mass. I my problem is I need to invent two or three more months in the year to handle all the business that we have gotten. So, so who does do you yourself do the programming? Yeah. All right. So describe that process. Are you like 
in, in your office with your feet on the desk yeah, saying, yeah, I want that. Yeah, yeah, have the yeah. bar open. No, a lot of coffee is consumed in my place. But honestly, I've always leaned local. I've always felt that that's, that's where those are the, that's the talent I'm interested in. I love seeing big concerts. I don't mind going to see them. But to me, you're not an arts community if Taylor Swift comes through and takes a bunch of money and leaves. You're not an arts community on in with any of that stuff. Broadway comes through. It's great to have it. People like it. You're an arts community if the people who are living here with talent and are artists can afford to make a living and have places to perform, show their work. You know, that's an arts community. That's New York. That's Chicago. That's San Francisco. It's L.A. It needs to be St. Petersburg, and that's kind of what we're trying to do. So I've, I think about like Nate Najar, who lives here, great jazz guy, is touring Europe and playing all over the country, but we're his home base. He calls me. We put together dream shows for him. We sell great tickets. Uh, it works financially for me, but it also we treat him like a star. I have eight or nine of those folks that we've taken on, and there's more I'd like to take on, but I only have so many dates, but we try to find the best and the brightest and, and let them do their dream shows. They come to me and say, I want to do this, and that's what we're doing with our Beacon Dance. Uh, two great dancers from here, both had national careers. Helen French is making babies and got married and has come home at 30, and but she's a real big-time choreographer, and so we've managed to put together some fundraising, the stage, you know, we're selling tickets, I'm paying them, and they're bringing me a great show, and we're bringing in some national talent, and we're featuring local dancers and five different choreographers, and that's to me what the Palladium is supposed to be. And we can do it on a nice level because we got a great stage, the Marley Floor, I've got a box office, I've got marketing, I've got... So together, we do this with Chamber Series as well. We're doing that with Chamber Music. I'm selling a... I've got 500 people come to a blues show with the... It's all very locally connected. So anyway. So it almost sounds like you're you're sort of this hybrid, you know, it's Palladium Performing Arts Center, but you're almost a repertory company. I, as I was listening to you, I'm thinking arts incubator. You know, you're developing talent. And I think we are. I, I'm not a, a production house. What I do trying to do is find artists and you bring me the show. We will support you in a way that will let you bring me the show, but I don't have sets. I don't have scenery. I have great tech. I have great marketing. I have great box office. I have some money I can put up and risk. And we have a fundraising arm. But the artists do bring me their stuff, which tends to work really well. St. Pete Opera is our, yeah, one of our biggest clients. And they grew, this was before I got there. Uh, but the Palladium incubated St. Pete Opera with low rent and support uh, and, you know, it's now a great organization standing on its own, and we still try to make great deals and partner with them, but but the Palladium is what helped underpin a great idea by Mark Sforzini and the people who loved opera here, and I, the success of St. Pete Opera goes to the fact that they have a place mm-hmm. that's not the perfect place. We don't have a pit, we don't have, you can't bring scenery in so as well you should for a lot of operas, but acoustically it's a beautiful hall, and... You know, it's a great place for them to perform. And we that's one of the biggest success stories around the Palladium. Well, we were talking to someone recently, and, and it was creative control was very important to her. And the way you're describing it, if I'm an artist, I have full creative control. I, you know, I, yes, I sign off on, I like this idea. But with the Beacon, I signed off on the idea that I like the fact that you're bringing all these dancers together. I'm not 
you choreograph whatever you want with you know a jazz guy yes we've got the budget to do this show you bring it to me in whatever way i don't tell you what to play i don't tell you what to write uh, and it works out well, especially when you you know hire talented people and turn them loose. That's... But who pays for that? Like when the Beacon comes in, do they have to rent the no. facility? No. No, we produce it. I tell them, here's how much I can put up. We then go out and with Beacon, we've raised uh, about $9,000 in the community with their help and our help. And we sort of help them organize it. You know, I've got a good fundraising guy. And uh, so between those two things and how many tickets, you know, and I don't need... I just need to break even. You know, I don't need to make a huge profit off these things. I just need to have them be successful enough that people see them and we're not throwing a bunch of money out the window. And what I would, when I tried to bring in big national companies, they cost a lot more and you couldn't fundraise around them. But this is working. Local works for us. It, it also sounds like you're doing some, for artists, some development and some mentoring. I think, yeah, I think so, without telling them how to be artists. But to, to when they have a place that uh, they can come to, Nate uh, does an annual Christmas show with us, a holiday show. And uh, last year was the 10th anniversary. And he said, I want to do something special. And so we doubled what we put at risk financially. He brought in a 14-piece big band, and seven of the guys on stage were some of the biggest names in jazz. And so I... As we're delving in, I, 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 I'm surprised, very positively surprised, but it's almost like you know, opening a, the Russian doll, and each time we <laughs> open it, there's a new feature. Um, is there any other place in the world like this doing well, what you do? I don't know doing? about in the world. I think we're we're somewhat unique uh, here. I, you know, I think my my buddy Bob Devin Jones does some of that at the studio as well, uh, just on a different scale. You know, I've got 850 seat theater, and I've got you know, this endowment to work with. And, and we actually find ourselves working. We're always collaborating. I'm always doing stuff with him. Or he's borrowing tables from me. But I think we both have that vision of how do you support your local arts community and become relevant uh, and also find a way to make that business work. Because that's what I'm most proud of is that we're actually, this business is working uh, Based on a completely different model than what most performing arts centers do. Mm -hmm. I, I can't, there's no conference for me to go to. <laughs> there's a big conference right now in New York, and I went to it one year, and I'm going, but this isn't me. It's all about what acts from around the world are you going to bring to your center? And I'm in a place where there's seven performing arts centers within 50 miles of me all bringing those acts in. So we had to find these niches. And now the Stras calls us when they're wanting to promote a jazz show, can you help us promote jazz? Because we own jazz. Can you help us promote blues? Can you help us promote chamber music? Because we own chamber music here now. So, And we own it with sort of a local presence. So that sort of leads me to the next question. Obviously, there's enough jazz musicians and enough blues musicians and enough chamber musicians and enough dancers here locally or, or at least regionally for you to do a, a very strong annual program. There are. I think one of the things that we I do believe in is building around local. It doesn't mean that everyone on stage has to be local. Uh, Jeff Malter, who's the concert master at the Florida Orchestra, wanted there's no chamber series in our closest one was Sarasota. Jeff was a chamber musician before he came to the orchestra. So he and I got together, put this series together, and three of the four players are his former mates from New York City, and we bring them in. 
but it's built around this local guy. And so it's local, it's national, it's the idea is for it to be great. And to have your artistic director is this guy who lives in our town and is playing in it. And so it's not just that every player on stage has to be local. That's not a rule. It has to be great. And it has to be sort of artistically directed by somebody local. So talk to me a little bit about the St. Pete slash Pinellas County music scene. Where do you think it's strengths are and and where is it going? And uh, what is the Palladium's role in that? You know, it's always been a great, uh, there's been a lot of good music and a lot of good musicians come out of here. Uh, I think we've got a pretty healthy uh, scene. You've kind of got to leave to really get, to really get famous, uh, though the internet has changed some of that. Where I play is this idea that under 35, the local bar scene and the local club scene are great, and that's I don't even go after those bands. I I look at artists who are going to appeal to an audience that's like 35 and above, because at about age 35, you get thrown out of the bars unceremoniously. You're too old. They don't want you. There's a whole new crop of people coming up and a whole new music scene. And so we're really working with these artists who have longevity and who have proven themselves in various ways and have audiences that would like to pay money and sit down. Mm-hmm. and have the place smell good and have nice restrooms and you know, candles on the table and things like that. So uh, it's I think our role is is finding these niches that have worked for us. Comedy is a good niche for us, believe it or not, and uh, uh, jazz, blues, folk and acoustic. But really the idea is to whatever you present to make it so good that people will come. We have people who come just because it's affordable and it's great. So do you think St. Pete is on the map in other places and people who don't live here, is it on their on their map as a jazz or a blues kind of place? Yeah, I don't know that we we are on the national map. I think St. Pete, I see more on the map for for you know glass artists and more on the map for for clay. Uh, but I think we're developing a pretty good scene. And when I'm selling 500 tickets to local jazz, I think that's indicative of sort of where things are going and we've got jazz musicians who are choosing to live here and finding the ability to live here they go off and tour and they do other things but they're finding the scene very satisfying and also financially satisfying so i think we've got a ways to go to get there but but we've got a lot of elements in place to go there so as i'm sort of looking back on the notes i've taken as we've talked i don't see the word cabaret Mm -hmm. I shouldn't have said that while you were drinking coffee, That's should funny. I? That's funny. Uh, it's one of the things I have failed the most at in presenting is cabaret. Because you love cabaret. I love cabaret. And I thought, you know, and early on, I, we didn't really mention this because I can now say, oh, look how many tickets we're selling. We failed a lot early on trying to find the right balance. You know, I would book things that I was sure was going to be great. Uh, and usually it was when I thought I needed to book national and sort of forgot my mantra Stay with your mess, you know. Stay with your uh, mission, and you'll do well. But we tried cabaret. I brought in great New York Broadway singers, and you know, looked out in the audience, and where was everyone? Uh, so we haven't done as much with cabaret. I hope to go there. Uh, yeah, I've got a great room for it. I think you could build it. I do cabaret, but I never wanted to book myself at the Palladium because I thought that was kind of bad form to book yourself. So we have a nice series. My wife and I do with. 
Matt and Frank uh, at the American stage. And so we've had a nice run at that, and it's good that, you know, no one can say, well, he, he's only having crowds because he booked himself. So I only play the Palladium for benefits and freebies. So those cabaret performances at American Stage are become very difficult to get tickets to. I'm happy about that. Yeah. And because they sell out so quickly. It's a small, you know, it's a small room, 75, 80 people a night. But we do three nights, and it's been really great. I mean, early on, like anything else, uh, if my... I would hope 12 or 15 of my friends would show up. And now we warn people to get your tickets. And so it's grown into something really nice. And how often do you do those? Normally three weekends a, a season between fall to May. We do, kind of do it around their schedule when they have dark weekends. So what do the audiences, the people who attend your cabaret performances, what do they like about it? One, I think they love, my favorite era is the songs of the 20s, 30s, 40s, and early 50s. These people love those songs. And it's not that they necessarily grew up with them. It's just there's a real audience for these wonderful songs. And I do my journalism research and try to tell entertaining stories around the songs. The shows all have themes, and you learn things, hopefully, in a painless, often funny way. And uh, I think that combination is good. And my wife's a star, and you know, I have a great drummer, a great horn guy. What do you like about your cabaret performances? People show up, they applaud, and what actually, to be honest, the I had bands for years uh, that were mostly dance bands and fun bands with girl singers and seven pieces, and people were dancing and carrying on, and we did big shows. But you know what I like about this is it's a theatrical setting. People come to hear the show, they sit there for an hour, they laugh when it's appropriate, they clap when it's appropriate, but they're not talking to their friends or on their phone. They're actually there for to really see our show in a more theatrical way. And that's what I, I've turned down a lot of shows now that are just, oh, you're just playing music. That's, I've done that. I'm really liking being able to write these shows. They're all completely written. Researched. What do you mean by written? I, I, mean, I mean, there's a full script uh, and everything I say I've written out I may ad lib off that, but it's fully researched. I've read all the books. I've read about this song. I've studied these composers. And so there's a theme, there's a script, and it's supposed to sound like it's coming off the top of my head. So give me an example, either of a show that you've done or perhaps an upcoming one, what the theme is and what might be in the script and what the songs are and how you put them all together. We just we just did one, and we used to be, we were, I would do just great composers. You can do a Cole Porter night and sell that out any night of the week, and you tell stories of his life. And I got, okay, we've done that. What do we do now? So Woody Allen's movie Midnight in Paris came out, and in my research, Cole Porter lived in Paris, Gershwin visited him, Irving Berlin visited him, Rogers and Hart visited So we did a night of your your Cole Porter's apartment in Paris, and it's a party, and they're all there. And so, and I would tell the stories, because there were stories of each of these composers coming to visit. So who, uh, what did you play from each of those composers at your night in Paris? Well, the nice thing was I got to pick my favorite songs okay, so. from each of them. So Cole Porter may have been uh, Night and Day or and a couple of others. We did a lot of Cole Porter in those shows. But, you know, my with Gershwin, I got to say, what song do I really like? So we might do Our Love is Here to Stay, which is one of my favorite songs. They hadn't even written it in the 20s. But because of that theme, I could do that. And uh, and Irving Berlin was a big supporter of Cole Porter's, and so I did some of his early things and read 
you know, letters that he had written to Cole Porter, encouraging him to come from Paris to Broadway and, and encouraging him how to be more, write more hit songs. And so, that was, you know, it was just, it was fun. And people learned something and you were transformed to this place. And we had some fun with the French theme. And so, and it's an hour and 10 minutes. What are you going to, you know, it's an hour for heaven's sakes. Enjoy yourself. And you play the piano. I play the piano and sing. My wife sings. And she's a wonderful actress character. And people can't take their eyes off her because she just really knows how to command that. And uh, Matt Cowley plays the drums. And Frank Bowman plays multiple horns. And it's just a simple... Simple little thing, and I talk a lot. Is Cole Porter your favorite? You know, he he is, though. Now I kind of feel like they're all my uncles who've taught me so much, and I can be happy doing... We did a Hoagie Carmichael show, and I love Hoagie Carmichael and didn't realize how much I loved him until I started doing the show. And Johnny Mercer, they're just... It, it just is such a... a that era... Uh, one of the things I talk about is that, you know, things go through eras where they're really good. I mean, we are living in the 60s. It was the great era of air travel. You know, we can't call this the great era of air travel. This is a horrible era. This is the great era of dentistry, in my opinion. (laughs) But that era, starting in the 20s, when African-Americans moved up to the city, Jewish immigrants came from Europe, they brought those two kinds of music came together and the operatic traditions and the musical theater traditions produced a run of about 35 years of some of the best songwriting ever. It will not be replicated. And that was the high point. And it's great to mine that era. I should add that I really think there's some great songs that Lennon and McCartney certainly fall in that canon. And Burt Bacharach falls in that canon. There's still, you know, I think, you know, James Taylor. So it's, it's really great songwriting. And Paul Simon, it continues. Billy Joel, those, these are great. Billy Joel would have fit in the 30s just fine. He would have written great songs then. Uh, I just think those songs tend to get done a lot, where the we can find gems from the 20s, 30s, 40s, and early 50s that no one's ever heard before. They don't know that they maybe heard a little bit of it, but they don't know why it was such an important song. Uh, you know, My Funny Valentine was in a show by Rodgers and Hart with so many hits, it was ignored until Sinatra did it in the 50s and it became one of the most endearing standards, but it was already 20 years old at that point. So, you know, just those things that you think you know that song, but I didn't realize that. Any songwriters today of interest to you? Oh, lots of them. No, I, I, I listen, uh, I am kind of all over the place uh, with music because I'm always trying to keep up with what's going to go to an Americana festival in uh, in Nashville, and it's all these sort of alternative country artists who are writing great songs. And, and Jason Isbell, I think, is one of the best songwriters out there right now. And, you know, there's Feist, who I think is great, who's a sort of a pop performance. She had that five, one, two, three, four, tell me that you want some more. The It was a big Apple commercial. She's one of the most amazing songwriters out there. And how do you decide which of the song parts you're going to sing and which your wife is going to sing? She tells me that she needs to sing more songs, and so I have to give her some good ones. She's actually stealing some good song from me. I think Bewitched, Bothered, and Bewildered, which is my favorite song, uh, right up there in the top five. And she says, I think I'm going to sing that song this time. You always sing that song. So and she'll do a great job with it. So it would kind of what you try to do is not have too much of me, mix her in. Frank sings one every night. You know, just you try to... It's all about how do you keep people entertained and paying attention. I've spent years putting together set lists for bands, and every time we say goodbye, it never fails to have women crying and, you know, me happy to have made them cry. 
So I, I kind of have to take us back to the beginning because you are a writer and, and you, you describe that you're actually writing a story that takes place in the 80s in Ybor City. Plus, I also, if, I'm, if my memory serves, you write radio plays. We've done some of that for radio theater, yes. So you're still an active writer. You yes. are a, an empresario. You run a really successful, I don't want to call it theater, performing arts center. Performing arts center. There we go. Oh, yeah. And you are also a performer yeah, yourself. Yeah. Right? And all of those things seem like they could be full-time jobs. And I'm actually one of the laziest people I know. I keep trying to find ways to be not work so hard. But they're all so much fun. You know, where I... the, the logical question is, where do you get the time? But I think I would say, where do you get the energy? What, what keeps you going and doing all of that with such excitement and you know, joy? I... A friend of mine says, there are people who have the look at me gene that drives them. And I don't know, may, I think maybe I have that. It's like you want to get up in front of an audience. I'm very comfortable. I'm going to introduce this show at 500 people tonight at the Palladium. And that's fun for me to get up there. And I might crack a joke or something. And it, it, you know, when I was a little kid, I used to get in my room, you know, lip sync to songs and hold a you know, hairbrush as a microphone. It just seemed like that was something I needed to do. And I think that drives you. And a feeling that you're never quite good enough, so you've got to practice harder and do more. And I think any artist will tell you, if you don't have a project, what are you doing? You know, if I don't have a song project, am I going to practice my piano? If I don't have a writing project, am I going to actually write? You know, I have a business to run, so I have to, you know, that I get paid for it. And, but you, without a goal, because... I think fear motivates us more. I don't want to fail. I don't want people to get up and say, God, that guy, that was a terrible show. Well, I, I just hold, hold on just one second and slow us both down because mm-hmm. I think you said something so meaningful, at least to me, that if you, you have to have a project because if you don't have a project, you won't play your piano. If you don't have a project, you won't put words onto paper. So I, I don't know, you know, I've been around the, the block a few times. I'm not, super, I'm, I'm in that over 35 demographic. <laughs> and it's like, why did that never occur to me in quite that way? That's- Wait, to me, that's the basis of, of everything. I'm really, you know, proud of my journalism days. It was one that I really, that was a great, satisfying business. It's a good business to be out of now. Uh, sadly, the economic model is not as good as it was, but I really love that period. And I love all the stuff I'm doing. I love this period right now. So it's, it's exciting. My mom will go, shouldn't you take it a little easier? You know, you're always, we're always scheduling and seeing her around all these things we're doing. But to me, I'm doing those things because I want to be a better piano player and performer. I want to be a better writer. And, you know, I think it might, something often I think it'd be smarter if I would pick one. But that's just what I do. And it's what gives me some joy. And uh, at the end of the day, that's kind of what it's all about. Well, it kind of turns that, how do you get to Carnegie Hall, practice, 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 and it turns it about uh, maybe 45 or 90 mm. degrees. How do you get to Carnegie Hall? Project, project, project. It's all about the projects. It really is. What we did in Ybor City was all about these projects that we just sort of, this would be fun to do. And we ended up, at, you know, you get about three quarters of the way into it, you're going, what have I done? Why have I decided to do this? I remember, and I still do this to this day, looking at someone as I'm driving to my next thing and thinking, you know, they're going to go home, they're going to watch TV, they're going to have dinner. Why am my life not like that? But in the end, it's not like that because I don't want it to be like that. Thank you for listening. I've been here with Paul Wilbur. And you can find out more about the Palladium at mypalladium.org.
You've been listening to Arts In, the Creative Pinellas podcast, sponsored in part by the Pinellas County Board of County Commissioners, Visit St. Petersburg Clearwater, and the State of Florida Department of Cultural Affairs. Arts In is produced by Matt and Sheila Cowley, and you can hear more of their great work and some wonderful conversations with visual, literary, and performing artists at our website, creativepinellas.org. This is Barbara St. Clair. Thank you for listening.